Today we want to talk about the gift of righteousness. It's the same principle in terms of relationship, but different outcome. In our present study, we have been analyzing the principle of federal, when you think of federal, think of first, federal headship. The truth that the first man, Adam, because he was the first, affected all of his posterity by his actions. Likewise, Jesus coming in as the last Adam represents his posterity as well by his actions. That's the idea of federation. Representation that affects a vast number of others should not be that difficult a concept for us to grasp because it happens in our society all the time, everywhere. For example, Michigan is certainly a union state, by which I mean the auto workers, UAW, represent all those employees of the big three. General Motors, Ford, Chrysler, I guess now Ram is on its own, Ram trucks. So union contracts are usually three years in length, but at the end of the three years, negotiations begin for a new contract. While the three major auto manufacturers, are now four, bargained separately with the UAW, the process is the same. Duly elected union officials sit down with the management representatives to work out an agreement on wages and hospitalization and pensions and so on. Not all of the 50,000 plus auto workers in this country negotiate their contracts individually. They couldn't do that in any conceivable way. Say, well, they could go to a big stadium, but it still wouldn't work. No, the representatives talk. The representatives talk. And they argue. And they bargain. And they write it down on paper. They go over the wording in detail. And while the UAW may have the final vote of approval, those thousands of workers, even if they disagree and vote no, have to wait while their representatives go back to management, bargain table again to hammer out a compromise. In the end, the UAW must and does accept the deal. Their representative heads have secured this, and it doesn't matter how many revisions it took to get the agreement. This kind of representation is everywhere. We have one or two or a few representing hundreds and thousands and so forth. In the family, God assigns headship to dad, right? Dad says the buck stops here. But even in rebellious homes in which a wife might assume headship, family decisions are affected by the representative head. What about church? Well, in the church we have duly appointed elders. Yes, they have to meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. But that being ascertained, the church at large is cautioned. Let me read it. 
Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work may be a joy and not a burden, for that would not go well with you. That's Hebrews 13, verse 17. Retail stores, whether they're mom and pop party stores on the corner or the large Walmart, Kmart, and Myers box stores that take up acres and acres of space, they all have some person or persons, plural, at the head who call the shots for the entire store. The way it is. Now here's the rub. There are good representative heads who make good and wise decisions. And there are bad representatives who make wicked and ignorant decisions. It's everywhere. Some years back, Solyndra, Solyndra's failure in the solar industry was due in large part to poor management. <clears throat> what was Solyndra? Well, they made um, roof panels for, uh, uh, what do they call that? Sun energy and so forth. They lost $500 million. They had to close the company for poor management. And that was... $500 million of taxpayer money, so that's you, you and my money going towards that. On top of the bankruptcy that occurred, government management didn't do any better. They took over Solyndra. Now, what did they do? They scrapped, believe this or not, they scrapped all the stockpiled solar panels that they could have sold off to other companies to use. They scrapped them all. More millions and millions of dollars being lost. But somebody higher up in, these, in the government and the con uh, companies made, made these decisions. This all relates to our text, which is discussing spiritual headship. Adam of Eden failed in his allegiance to God, his creator, his Lord. He opted to believe Satan's lie, and in so doing... He bowed before Satan as his head instead of before God. The consequences of Adam's failure affected all those he represented. Verse 17 of our text. By the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man. See verse 14 too. Also look at verse 18. The result of one trespass was, here it is, condemnation for all Men. How can that be? It can be because Adam, being the first man, represents all men, and his actions adversely affected his entire posterity. Now, unlike the UAW contract, you and I do not get to vote our approval or disapproval with regard to Adam. There's no going back to the bargaining table. There is no new first man. There's no new Eve. There's no pristine, perfect Eden. There's no sinless environment. It was all lost in Adam's sin. So what we have is consequence. Consequence. And we have to live with the consequences more accurately, we die because of the consequence of Adam's failure. We're condemned by God in 
the consequence. But consider now the representation of Jesus Christ. There are consequences to his actions too. How he behaves in reference to God the Father affects the people that he represents as equally as did Adam and Eve. The principle is the same, but my, what a difference in the outcome. Look again at verse 17. Adam's one trespass initiated a reign of death that characterizes all humanity everywhere. Everybody dies. Likewise, for those who receive God's gift of grace, the gift of righteousness, the reign of life is initiated and ongoing. Look at verse 18. Adam's one trespass led to condemnation. Jesus' one act of righteousness led to justification and life for all whom he represents. Again, one more verse, verse 19. Adam's one act of obedience made everybody sinners. Jesus' obedience says that many will be made righteous. Now all of this, all of this is due to the representative head scenarios that we find in Scripture. It's the same principle, but different outcomes. We stand or fall before God based on the actions of our representative head. It's very true. So if all you have going for you is Adam the sinner as your representative, then you are in deep, deep trouble with God. Because he can't help you. He can condemn you. He can hurt you. But he can't help you. You must have Jesus, the last Adam, as your representative to counteract and reverse and restore and reconcile you to God. Now you might say, well, I think I'm okay. I, I don't think that it's as bad as you're portraying things. Well, brethren, actually, <laughs> actually words fail to portray things as bad as they are. I wish I had better words. Things are actually worse than sinful Adam's representation. You say, how could they get worse? Here it is. Personal sin and judgment for that sin is on top of the sin by association with Adam. In other words, what Adam's representation did for you is to give you a sin nature, a propensity towards sin, which means that apart from God's grace and a changed heart, all you do is sin. All the time. In thought, in word, in deed, because, as Paul describes unbelievers, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Romans 3, verse 18. What does it mean to fear God? Fear the Lord. Wiseman Solomon answers the question. To fear the Lord, he says, is to hate God evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. Proverbs 8 verse 13. Is that you all the time? Again, through love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for 
Through the fear of the Lord, a man avoids evil. Proverbs 16, verse 16. Through the fear of the Lord. Again, Proverbs 23, 17. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. Do you hate evil? Do I hate evil? Do I avoid evil? Do I refrain from envying sinners? If not, then there's no fear of God, or at least not in your heart the way it should be. Satan has convinced you and me that temporal troubles are more to be feared than eternal realities. But Jesus himself addressed this question, and here's what he said. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now there's a, a fear worth having. Matthew 10, verse 28. Again, Solomon says, Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord will be kept safe. Proverbs 29, verse 25. You know, even God's people are motivated more times than we'd like to be by their fear of men rather than their fear of God. That's very true. Do you remember the story of Abraham before Abimelech? As he was coming into a Philistine country and Abimelech was the king. I'm reading scripture. I said to myself, there's surely no fear of God in this place. They will kill me because of my wife. What's he saying? He's saying that these people have no respect for God. And here I come. And if they want my wife, they're going to take it. And to get my wife, they're going to kill me. Genesis 20, verse 11. Aaron's explanation to Moses for fashioning a golden calf from the jewelry of the people. Here's what he said. Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. Exodus 32:22. Well, what's he saying? He was afraid of the people more than he was fearful of God. What do you expect? I had to do what they wanted. You know how evil these people are. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life from Ahab and Jezebel over whose idolatrous prophets he had just had a great victory. 1 Kings 19, verse 3. He ran away in fear. So we're not, uh, you know, we're not exempt from this kind of fear. All of this fear of men and what they might do to us, however, pales in comparison to our position before God and what he will do to us as lawbreakers. There is condemnation on all humanity because of Adam's representation. But notice now verse 20. The law of Moses was added so that the trespass might increase. What's that mean? Well, we have been learning that men are guilty as sinners before God through Adam's representation. In Adam, all die. There is a representation. But now Paul tells us one of the purposes for God giving his law, think of the Ten Commandments, was so the trespass might increase. 
What does that mean? Well, it means this, that far from the law being given so that men could obey it and be saved, God gave the law so that men could see their own personal trespass against God and thus their great need for a Savior. In other, in other words, oh, I can't blame it all on Adam. Hmm. I thought I was sailing along pretty good here because my sin was in Adam. But now the law comes along and I break the law and now my sin becomes personal. Personal. Consider when the wealthy lawyer came to Jesus. Scripture says, Now a man came to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Matthew 19, verse 16. When he said that, he was telling on himself. What was he telling? Well, he was saying, Lord, just tell me what I need to do to get eternal life, and I will do it. He thought he could do it, you see. He saw his problem as simply one of ignorance. I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but if you tell me, I'm sure I can do it. How did Jesus answer? Well, he didn't argue with this man, but he used the law. And he listed a number of the Ten Commandments. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Matthew 19, verse 20. Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, by the way, that's what it's going to take to get to glory. If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Matthew 19, verse 21. What happened here? I'll tell you what happened here. Commandment number 10 happened here. Commandment number 10 was highlighted by Jesus in practical terms. Thou shalt not covet. Only he didn't say it that way. He said, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and then come and follow me. It was the pin that burst this young man's balloon of self-righteous confidence. The law did what God intended it to do. It brought conviction of sin. So this young man, he's feeling pretty good about himself until the law of God became more than an academic exercise to prove what he thought was his own righteousness. Jesus challenged his thinking, using the law for its intended purpose to show this young man that he was a trespasser of God's requirements. That is the law's purpose. That's why God gave it. Not to save you. Not to say... Obey the Ten Commandments and you can earn eternal life. But rather to say, try as you will, you can never obey the law. 
You do not have the will, you don't have the heart, you don't have the ability to obey. All you can do is break the law, and that shows that you are self-condemned, not self-saved. That's what the law's purpose is. You know, Paul, the great apostle, he had the same experience. He's not, he doesn't exempt himself. Listen to this. He's speaking. Once, he says, I was alive apart from the law. I'm doing good. I felt pretty good about myself. I'm a Pharisee. I was, went to the best schools. I was a rabbi. I was teaching the law to people, to the community. Once, I was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. Romans 7, verse 9. What did he mean? Well, he meant that so long as his mind did not reflect on God's perfect standard, he did not see himself in any kind of danger. He was pleased with his own righteousness, his own position as a religious man, and as one who earned approval for God. He was alive, he was happy, alive, content. Alive, confident of his eternal destiny. Heaven is in the bag for me. But the bag developed a gaping hole when to his consciousness God applied the tenth commandment. He says in his words, when the commandment came, not always been there, but he's talking about the consciousness of it. When the commandment came, It became personal. I personalized it. Sin sprang to life. And I died. Brethren, this is the purpose of the law. It wasn't given to save you. It was to given to show you that you need a Savior outside yourself and outside your own ability. It was given not to show you how good you are or can become, but to show you how bad you are. It was given to show you that in addition to Adam's one trespass of one command of God, the sin you and I practice involves many trespasses of multiple righteous commands. So we are doubly guilty before God and we even, can I say it this way, we out-sin Adam. That just gives me chills to say it, even to think about it. Some years back, there was a young man in the news who was vac vacationing with his buddies on one of the seashore resorts. And he decided he was going to See how deep a hole he could dig in the sand. Does this sound like a college kid or what? Spring break, it's coming up. They do silly things like this. So he got a shovel and away he went, digging away. How, how deep could he dig a hole in the sand along the seashore? 
Well, when he got to 17 feet, I think that's quite a feat. This room's about 11. So, higher than this room. Anyway, when he got to 17 feet, he soon realized he had reached the limit of his ability because the hole caved in on him and buried him alive. He was at the mercy of his friends to dig as fast as they could before he suffocated. Well, he did survive. His folly would have killed him had not someone from the outside and independent of him stepped in to rescue him. The law of God allows us to dig a hole for ourselves through self-righteousness. But in the end, it buries us in our own impotence to obey God's standard perfectly. It'll bury you, but it will not rescue you. You and I need someone independent of us to step in, step down, stoop to our inability and pull us from the dirt into the breath of spiritual life. Adam is the first guy and he buries us along with the law that we break and break and break. When Christ is the last Adam, the person on the outside there to rescue us. Now note that in your outline. Jesus and his gift of righteousness. First thing we should note about Jesus is his sinless life. By the time of Jesus' birth, the law of God had been codified and taught in Israel for centuries. It was part of the curriculum of every Jewish boy who attended the synagogue schools. Even at age 12, you'll remember, when his parents went to Jerusalem for Passover feast. Jesus' preferred place was what? Let me read it. Sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking, <coughs> excuse me, asking them questions. And everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and at his answers. Luke 2, verse 46. Whereas other young boys his age were involved with games and other festivities, Jesus was absorbed with learning about the word of God from the teachers of the law and how it was to govern his life. You say, well, that doesn't sound very normal to me. Why wasn't he out having fun with the other kids? Well, what you and I define as normal, what we define as fun with the other kids, Jesus saw as the potential for trouble. Don't we say, well, boys will be boys. When we're trying to excuse our children when they sin against one another and against God. But Jesus was living the life of Adam as God had originally intended. And wonder of wonders, he did it in a less than perfect, sinful environment. The environment of his day was sinful and corrupt, but he was not corrupted or sinful. Peter puts it this way. He committed no sin. 
and no deceit was found in his mouth. 1 Peter 2.22 The Apostle John came to the same conclusion. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. 1 John 3, verse 5. Think again of that college kid buried in the sandpit of his own doing. What good would have come of it if his friends were in the pit with him when the pit collapsed? Jesus, referring to the hypocritical and false religious teachers of his day, told his disciples, leave them. They are blind guides. And if a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into the pit. Matthew 15, verse 40. That's what you get. You trust others like that. So brethren, we sinners need someone distinct from us, someone not a sinner, to extract us from the pit of sin we have dug for ourselves. And that's how needy we are. And that's how desperate our plight. We must have a Savior like that described by the writer of Hebrews. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, and set apart from sinners. Exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which Jesus took, which came after the law, appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Hebrews 7, verse 26 and following. David put it this way. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and he heard my cry and he lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and he gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth. I am a praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Psalm 40, the first four verses. Yeah, that's what we need. Someone outside of ourselves. The God who is outside of ourselves to restore us by pulling us out of the mire and the mud and setting our feet on the solid rock, who is Christ. Note here that David's hope is not in other sinful men, proud people with their idolatrous views of God. No, he needs the all-powerful and sovereign Lord to lift him out of the slimy pit that engulfs him and from the mud of sin that makes him dirty. He needs the one of whom Moses sang just days before Moses died. Here's what he said. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect. All his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just. 
is he. Deuteronomy 32, verse 3 and 4. Let me say to you young people, you coming off the winter blast, slimeball friends will not help you find peace with God. Help is not to be found in denying the truth, nor admitting it and ignoring the consequences of sin. People reap what they sow. Paul puts it this way, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33. What's he saying? He's saying sinners pull other sinners down with them. They're not a help. Only God in his grace can set your feet on the solid rock that does not move. That's Christ. Jesus is that sinless Savior who alone can save. So, there's real temptation to sin, but also real righteousness that's gained. Some have suggested that because Jesus could not sin, he did not sin, and that he knows little, therefore, about the problem that we face as sinners. This philosophy amazes me, but it's part of the world's Defective and sinful analysis, which goes something like this. You have to be one to know one. Have you heard that philosophy? We used to use it as kids. We changed the slogan a little. We said, it takes one to know one. Ever say that as a kid? One of your friends would tease you. You're so stupid, you can't even add two plus two. Takes one to know one, we would say in retort. Adult educators have developed a more sophisticated philosophy, but it is still based on this childish assumption, it takes one to know one. So what are you talking about? Well, here's the new twist. You have to be one to know one. When these educators go looking for a role model, say, to teach young people to abstain from sexual conduct because of an unforeseen pregnancy or to abstain from alcohol abuse, do they look for a person who has never succumbed to these things? Is that their model? No. They look for the unwed single mother and make her the spokeswoman for the classmates. They look for the kid who smashed his dad's car into a tree in a drunken stupor and barely escaped with his life to become the spokesman. The assumption is that help for these sins lies with others who have committed the same sins and now live with regrets. God knows that all the regret in the world will not keep others from doing the same sinful things. What God provides in his Son is the one of whom Hebrews 4.15 states, he who we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have 
one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Hmm. Hebrews 4.15. Let me read that again. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Ah, that's what I need. Not someone in the pit with me, buried alive and dying by the minute. You know, the, you have to be one to know one. But rather, I have one who had the good common sense to abstain from digging a death hole and who could dig me out when the hole caved in. You have to be one to know one. You have to be one to help one. Really? A sinner cannot atone for a fellow sinner. <coughs> he or she has their own sin burden to bear and they cannot help you. Because Jesus was blameless and separate from sinners does not mean that he cannot sympathize and more importantly, can't save you from where you are. Temptation is not sin in itself. It is a solicitation to sin and the desi devil desires that you bite the forbidden fruit, and die, but the temptation to do that only becomes sin when you bite. And so the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, but was without sin. In other words, the devil baited Jesus with all the possible propensities of being human, sinfully human. Self-gratification of the flesh, for example. After 40 days of fasting, Satan told Jesus, there's a lot of stones around here, why don't you just command the stones to make bread and go ahead and eat and satisfy your fleshly uh, hunger. Next, he took Jesus to a high point of the temple, and advocated that he throw himself down because, I mean, after all, God has promised in his word to assign angels to be your protector. And that was an appeal to pride. You're special. You can do things like this. You can jump off of high buildings and live to tell about it because the angels will come and snatch you up before you hit the ground. Jesus said in answer to that, do not put the Lord to the test. It's one thing to fall off a building because you misstepped. It's another thing to deliberately jump off the building and then quote scripture to God to deliver you. Lastly, the devil displayed all the kingdoms and wealth of the world and promised them to Jesus if he would but bow down and worship him. Self-gratification, pride, lust of the eyes, ooh, all the kingdoms of the world. 
Every category for every sin was dangled in front of Jesus. But he didn't bite. He didn't bite. All its resistance was the truth of God's word, which he used to counter the devil's twisted thinking. By the way, the devil does this. He'll use the Bible, twist it, make you think that God's telling you to do something. You need to be discerning. This temptation with Christ was so intense, so draining emotionally, so draining spiritually, that Matthew tells us, after the devil left him, angels came and attended to him. You've never been tempted like this. I've never been tempted like this. We are little fish compared to Jesus. The devil personally came after this last Adam with less subtlety and more viciousness than with the first Adam. We would say he pulled out all the stops and shot double barrels. Everything was in, that was in his capabilities. He tried to bring, bring Christ down to the level of sinful. The gospel prevailed. The scripture, our scripture says where sin increased, grace increased all the more so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5 verse 12. Brethren, it's fair to say that sinners are saved not only by the cross work of Jesus, but by his righteous life as well. The righteousness that saves is perfect obedience, not one sin. The first Adam saw to it that none of his posterity would ever be able to save him or herself, let alone somebody else. We all die in Adam because we are all sinners in Adam. Verse 12. Well, how did Jesus escape the taint of Adam's sin? Was he not fully human? Some heretics of the past have actually taught this. But if Jesus were not fully human, then he could never be our representative before God. Think about this. Just try to sneak in some non-union member to work on the UAW contract negotiations. How's that going to work? Will that get him very far? Now he'll be booted out the door. Who are you? What's, what's your badge number of the union? Well, I'm not a member of the union. Out the door. You have nothing to say. The writer of Hebrews says, For this reason, he, speaking of Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every way. Why? In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Hebrews 2, verse 17. He can't help us human beings if he's not a human being. He has to be part of who we are to represent us. 
Now, I want you to remember that being a sinner is not a prerequisite to being human. Adam was fully a human being before he sinned. How long he lived in the garden sinless, we don't know. So be careful not to predicate of Jesus something that was only known in Adam and his posterity after the fall. Jesus was truly human. Adam was truly human. And there was a long time probably before Adam became sinner. And then sin was associated with being a human. Okay, then how did Jesus escape inheriting Adam's sinful nature? Joseph was told of Mary's pregnancy. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Matthew 1, verse 20. In other words, no male human being was responsible for Mary's pregnancy. The child she was carrying was of God's miraculous power by the Holy Spirit. Neither Adam nor any of his descendants had anything to do with it. Obviously, the sin nature is Adam's legacy, not Eve's, because he sinned wide-eyed and willingly, whereas Eve was deceived. Joseph believed this to be true, so true, he went about to make sure that no one would ever be able to accuse Jesus of being his child, which would mean he was his, Jesus would be a sinner too, right? Matthew tells us, I'm reading scripture, Joseph had no union with Mary until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus, meaning Savior. This is, one, this is just one little verse in Scripture. But boy, what an important Scripture. Every doctrine about Christ is essential to your salvation. If you give up the virgin birth as many have done, you have no Savior. None. If Joseph or some other man was Jesus' father, then he was a sinner just like you, dead in Adam just like you, because in Adam, all related to Adam, dying. You say, well, then his was a supernatural conception. Yeah. <laughs> and this is exactly what God told Joseph when he was having doubts about wedding Mary. The child conceived in her is born of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to worry, Joseph, that she has been unfaithful to you. And as for yourself, I know that you have not even had relations with your own wife. Why not? He was protecting the reputation of Christ. 
This is not a sinner boy that was born to Mary. This was the son of the living God. Ooh. Who's that? And why do we need that? We need that one that's outside of Adam's sinful nature and outside of mankind's sinful heart and practices in order to step in and save us and pull us from the pit. Not one with us in terms of sin, but one with us in terms of a human nature representing mankind. All that will believe in him. The representative headship is absolutely wonderful. Paul says, I was crucified with Christ. I was there. I was crucified with Christ. Therefore, I live. That's it. That's it. It's the same for all of us. Christ did the work. We get the benefit. Christ was crucified and grants to us his righteousness. Great exchange. He takes our sin. He gives us his righteousness. Thank you, Lord. Our Father, we thank you and praise you for your word and for the principle of representation. It's not very often taught. We don't hear this much. But it's so important. Yeah, the first Adam let us down. He sinned and granted to us a sin nature. And we made a lot of good on that sinful nature. We just sinned, 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 sinned our way, our days, and hours, months, years. But all we were doing is digging a pit for ourselves to be condemned and to condemn heartily and without recourse. But then in comes Jesus, the last Adam. He is human like us, but he's not a sinner like us. He doesn't dig the pits. He doesn't set poor examples. He's the righteous one. And in addition to that, he grants us his righteousness so that we're accepted because of him. We thank you, Lord. Pray for everyone that's listening in, in the internet. Help them to see, help our people to see their salvation only in Jesus Christ. And he's sinless, blameless, without sin. And that's how he can help us. Let us trust him. Let us trust only him. Let us trust him now and forever. We pray this for your glory, God, you, because you deserve the glory and only you deserve it. We also pray it for our good. Because if we don't accept that Jesus did it all, that he's been merciful to us as sinners, then we will perish. We ask these things and praise you in Christ's name.